Biden-Harris administration has a mandate to deliver, and we will hold them accountable to that mandate. And if it's a decision between bipartisanship between them and congressional Republicans, or ensuring that our communities thrive, then the decision should be clear. Our communities must thrive. This is his time to be bold, to be strong, to build infrastructures that is needed for jobs, and for the health and for climate and for racial injustice. These are the promises that were made and we expect them to be honored. The original name of this act was quite revealing. It was called the Endless Frontier Act. Recall that the name Frontier was the term given to Native American land as the settlers moved from the Atlantic to the Pacific. And apparently the Endless Frontier would lead further west across the Pacific into China itself. El pueblo unido jamás será vencido. 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 Welcome to On the Ground, OnTheGroundShow.org.com. Well, as much as the Biden administration would like to move ahead with its domestic agenda, it is the role of the United States empire across the globe that remains in the news. Secretary of State Antony Blinken was questioned during a June 7th congressional hearing by Representative Ilhan Omar, and Omar tweeted about it afterward, saying, we must have the same level of accountability and justice for all victims of crimes against humanity. We have seen unthinkable atrocities committed by the U.S., Hamas, Israel, Afghanistan, and the Taliban. She asked Secretary Blinken where people are supposed to go for justice if the U.S. doesn't support investigations by the International Criminal Court, which is probing alleged war crimes in Afghanistan and the occupied Palestinian territories. Here is Omar speaking at the House Foreign Affairs Committee on June 7th. I know you oppose the court's investigation in both Palestine and in Afghanistan. I haven't seen any evidence in either cases that domestic courts both can and will prosecute alleged war crimes and crimes against humanity. And I would emphasize that in Israel and Palestine, this includes crimes committed by both the Israeli security forces and Hamas, in Afghanistan, it includes crimes committed by the Af- Afghan national government and the Taliban. Through her line of questioning, Omar kept alive the post-ceasefire reality of ongoing violence, ethnic cleansing, and other crimes against humanity committed against Palestinians by the apartheid state of Israel, which receives nearly $3.8 billion in military aid from the United States and was approved for an additional $735 million last month as it slaughtered 250 people, including 66 children, during bombings of Gaza. Twelve Democrats in the House attacked Omar's comments on June 9th in a joint statement accusing her of placing the U.S. and Israel in the same category as Hamas and the Taliban and giving cover to terrorist groups and harboring deep-seated prejudice. 
In response to the attack from her fellow House Democrats, Omar said that citing an open case against Israel, the United States, Hamas, and the Taliban in the ICC isn't comparison or from deep-seated prejudice. She added that, quote, you might try to undermine these investigations or deny justice to their victims, but history has taught us that the truth can't be hidden or silenced forever. If not now, a progressive Jewish advocacy organization said Thursday that House Democrats using Islamic tropes to smear Ilhan Omar do not represent the American Jewish community. In a tweet referencing the congressional representatives, if not now said they are more interested in protecting Israeli occupation and apartheid than working towards Jewish safety and equal rights for Palestinians and Israelis. Edward Ahmed Mitchell, National Deputy Director of the Council on American Islamic Relations, said in a statement, quote, Representative Omar stated an indisputable fact. Various actors in the Middle East, including our own government, have committed atrocities and should face accountability for their conduct in the appropriate international forums. There is nothing prejudiced about this observation, end quote. This debate about human rights in Washington came after a coalition of activists blocked an Israeli contracted ship from unloading and forced it to depart from the Port of Oakland on June 4th. As part of the action, called Hashtag Block the Boat, members of the International Longshore and Warehouse Union, ILWU Local 10, refused to cross the picket line as a response to Israel's most recent wave of killing and ethnic cleansing of Palestinians. Laura Kiswani, executive director of the Arab Resource and Organizing Center, AROC, the group leading the Block the Boat protest, told reporters after the victory, quote, gone are the days that the apartheid state of Israel can expect to do business as usual, just as successful boycotts against the South African government, businesses, and institutions help mark the end of the apartheid regime. We are seeing communities turn the tide against Israel's ongoing occupation, apartheid, racism, and violence against the Palestinian people who are fighting for their liberation, end quote. While some corporate Democrats openly attacked Omar's common sense observation about human rights, apparently some will only express regret privately about Vice President Kamala Harris's first foray into foreign policy. At least one Biden ally told The Hill that Harris's trip to Central America was a quote-unquote disaster as right-wing media had a field day with Harris's admonition to Guatemalans to do not come, do not come to the U.S. border. She was also being panned for her response about visiting the U.S. southern border in an interview with NBC's Lester Holt. This whole thing about the border, we've been to the border. We've been to the border. You haven't been to the border. I, and I haven't been to Europe. And I, I, mean, I, don't, I don't understand the point that you're making. Harris also drew fire from progressives, including Representative Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez, for not acknowledging the U.S. role in destabilizing Central and South America and causing the refugee crisis. Ocasio-Cortez wrote on Twitter, quote, 
First, seeking asylum at any U.S. border is a 100% legal method of arrival. Second, the U.S. spent decades contributing to regime change and destabilization in Latin America. We can't help set someone's house on fire and then blame them for fleeing, end quote. More international news later in the show with Professor Gerald Horn. Back in the U.S., there was good news and bad news for those working to transition the United States away from fossil fuels. On June 9th, TC Energy, the company behind the Keystone XL pipeline, announced termination of the project, which would have carried tar sands oil from Canada to Nebraska. That announcement came a day after hundreds of indigenous-led water protectors locked arms and some chained themselves to construction equipment to block completion of the Line 3 pipeline project in northern Minnesota. If completed, this Enbridge pipeline would cross Anishinaabe treaty land without tribal consent and endanger water and wetlands as it transports crude tar sands oil from Alberta, Canada to the port of Superior, Wisconsin. According to the Environmental Justice Network, about 200 people were arrested and many faced abuse in county jails. An LRED sound cannon was reportedly used against protesters, and as documented by the journalists at Unicorn Riot, U.S. Customs and Border Patrol and the Department of Homeland Security used the helicopter to fly low over protesters, causing injuries with clouds of dust and construction debris. They're flying quite low, like just feet between the helicopter and some of the pumping station equipment. Many individuals and groups, such as the Indigenous Environmental Network, who are active in the Line 3 protests, are also calling on the Biden administration to not make further cuts in his $2.2 trillion infrastructure plan in order to secure elusive support from Republicans. On Thursday, a bipartisan group of senators said it had reached a compromise agreement that is still less than half of Biden's plan and may include taxes on gasoline that would hit the poor and working individuals and families rather than the corporations that Biden pledged to tax during his presidential campaign. Speaking of protests, Chantel James has an update on the legal fallout from June 1st, 2020, when militarized police also used weapons such as a dangerous low-flying helicopter and tear gas here in the middle of Washington, D.C. to disperse peaceful protesters. The Biden administration seeks to dissolve lawsuits brought by the ACLU against Trump for the tear gassing and violent response to protests on June 2020, the sounds of which we just heard. On the 28th of May of this year, lawyers for both the Biden administration and protesters made arguments before U.S. District Judge Dabney Friedrich in the District Court for the District of Columbia. 
As the nation erupted in protest in the wake of George Floyd's death on May 25, 2020, people in D.C. who took to the streets were met by militarized violence from President Trump's administration and local government. Black Lives Matter D.C. versus Trump was filed by the ACLU of D.C., Washington Lawyers Committee for Civil Rights and Urban Affairs, Lawyers Committee for Civil Rights Under Law, and the law firm of Arnold and Porter. The judge on May 28th provided questioning that suggested it was not unreasonable for force to be used in clearing protesters on that day. And the Biden administration claims that the suit is no longer relevant now that a new president has taken office. An attorney for the protesters says that the change of the administration is not enough to do away with the case, arguing that the new administration has not completely repudiated the conduct or showed it can never happen again. A decision on whether to dismiss the suit is forthcoming. For On the Ground, this is Chantal James. In another update or twist from June 1st, 2020, an inspector general for the U.S. Park Police says now that officials of that agency had been planning to clear protesters from Lafayette Park near the White House before they learned that President Trump was going to walk through that area last year for that photo op with an upside-down Bible. But the report does suggest that police did turn violent just after they were informed of Trump's plans. Finally, in culture and media, D.C. residents who have been fighting a plan by the district and private developers to convert the 25-acre McMillan Park into a complex, including nearly 700 apartments and townhouses, are heading into federal court. The new lawsuit alleges that destroying the park, which was the district's first racially integrated park, violates historic preservation law and federal land use covenants for the park, which is listed on the National Register of Historic Places. The online home for the Committee for the McMillan Park Conservancy is SaveMcMillan.org. That's SaveMcMillan.org. And those are headlines and happenings. Stay with us.
we learned that Joe Biden, in an effort to negotiate with Republicans, announced that he would go from $2.3 trillion of needed resources to our community to $1.7. Now, those resources, that money, is not just dollar amounts. Those resources can be translated into racial justice, into good high road jobs for our people, into healing the historical wounds in, in indigenous communities, in black and brown communities, in working class communities all across this country. Am I right? That's why we're here today, because we believe that there is a mandate for this federal government to ensure that all of our communities thrive, that what we're experiencing is not normal, that these crises are putting all of our communities at risk, and that the Biden-Harris administration has a mandate to deliver, and we will hold them accountable to that mandate. And if it's a decision between bipartisanship between them and congressional Republicans, or ensuring that our communities thrive, then the decision should be clear. Our communities must thrive. That's why we're here today, and that's why I and so many colleagues from all over our country, representing so many communities, will, will speak here. So thank you so much, and I want everybody to, to be led in this chant. Repeat after me. Climate justice is racial justice. Racial justice is climate justice. Climate justice is racial justice. Climate justice is racial justice. Climate justice is racial justice. Louder. Climate justice is racial justice. Climate justice is racial justice. Thank you. Good afternoon. Buenas tardes. <laughs> My name is Hope Spark of a Flame Butler. I'm a member of the Piscataway Kanoi people. We are the indigenous people of the Washington, D.C., Maryland, and Northern Virginia area. And today, first of all, thank you, I would like to welcome you to our homeland. I'm very honored to be here representing the Indigenous Environmental Network. And I want to start off, first of all, by reading a statement from our Executive Director, Tom Goldtooth. Indigenous Environmental Network is alarmed, but not surprised, by the news that President Biden is already compromising with climate deniers on his own weak plan to invest $2.3 trillion in infrastructure and climate. This significant reduction in investment means putting entire communities dire needs on the chopping block. 1.7 trillion is simply not enough. We cannot afford to be tricked into apathy or maintaining the status quo when it comes to addressing climate crisis our community's needs, and ensuring our transition into a just future for generations to come. After weeks of promising to build back better, President Biden appears to have changed his tune. Without bold investment in an economic renewal plan, entire communities will be left out of clean, a fair future 
and we know exactly who those communities will be. Indigenous nations, communities, black, brown, Asian, Pacific, low income, and frontline communities. Our message to President Biden is clear. We cannot reverse the injustice done to these communities and indigenous nations without actually investing in them at the level that will create a systematic change. We risk business as usual, which contains to sacrifice the health, safety, and economic opportunities of indigenous nations, and we cannot compromise our future. This is very serious time in the United States. As I was kind of preparing today, and I, as I walk, walked up and I called and I said, well, where do I go? And they said, we have the Thrive signs on our mask. So before I spoke, I just looked up the definition of Thrive. Thrive means to grow, to develop, to prosper, to flourish. This is what the Thrive Act is meant to do. If we keep doing business as usual, we will not thrive. We have been surviving, and I mean literally surviving, for the past four years. We survived in isolation, loss of jobs, mental health, racial injustice. We cannot just survive anymore. We have to thrive and that is the main purpose of this act. President Biden needs to stand strong behind his promises to climate change, jobs and justice. Indigenous communities during a pandemic, especially in Arizona, when elders and tribal members were dying at alarming rates of COVID, they turned out in the election time to vote at amazing numbers. Over 22 indigenous communities in Arizona helped flip. Can I get it off a clap for that? Help flip Arizona. That was a dividing factor. President Biden came with Vice President Harris, and they spoke to the communities. We listened, we came out, we supported. And I promised myself I wasn't going to use this word, but I am from the Washington, D.C. area. Friday, he did an okie doke. I'm going to do something different. People in leadership, I know it is important for bipartisanship, but we have been shown by our Republican leaders that bipartisanship will not work unless it is in their favor. At times, you have to make the hard decisions. And the hard decisions means doing what is right and just. When people show you who they are, believe them. And these Republicans have shown us who they are, 
and I believe. If the Senate Republicans want to continue watching injustice destroy our black and brown indigenous communities, low-income frontline communities, just let them be a part of the audience because President Biden, everybody here, people who went out and voted are all part of the show. We're not standing on the sidelines, and we showed that in November. And we expect our pledges to be honored. A lot of us have been divided in our own members and our family to support change so we can be able to thrive. And we need President Biden to make those hard decisions and do what needs to be done. This is his time to be bold, to be strong, to build infrastructures that is needed for jobs and for the health and for climate and for racial injustice so my daughter can walk down the street of Washington, D.C., where she doesn't have to worry about being pulled over by the police or something happening to her. These are the promises that were made, and we expect them to be honored. Please, President Biden, do not continue to alienate your own party and the people who have supported you. We're here today to say we want to thrive. We want to stop surviving. Surviving is in my historical DNA, my ancestors' DNA. I want my future people and, and descendants to know that today, and along with President Biden, that we were meant to strive and to thrive here in the United States, Turtle Island. Thank you very much, and Wanishi. That was Hope Butler of the Indigenous Environmental Network and Piscataway Nation, and before her, Maurice Mitchell of the Working Families Party, speaking at the emergency rally at the White House, called by the Sunrise Movement to tell the Biden administration, don't abandon climate, care, and jobs. March 24, 2021. This is On the Ground, onthegroundshow.org, Voices of Resistance from the nation's capital. Now back to the rally. What's up, y'all? How's it going? My name is Evan Weber, and I am one of the co-founders and the political director of the Sunrise Movement. We are a movement of young people fighting for a Green New Deal here in this country. And I'm here today because my home community that I grew up in, my hometown of Kailua on the island of Oahu in Hawaii, has been going underwater, under the undersea for my entire life. And the traditional way of life that my neighbors and friends grew up caring for the land for generations is being threatened right now because of the climate crisis. Climate change is not some far-off problem. It is an urgent threat that we have to deal with right now. And every single year that the United States does not take action, bold action, makes that threat more and more impossible to solve. So that's why... In 2017, me and a few of my friends started the Sunrise Movement to try to make stopping climate change and creating millions of good jobs a top priority of the United States of America for the first time. And in 2018, after we worked to help elect Democrats up and down the ballot, 
We did just that by launching a movement for a Green New Deal with labor activists and frontline communities and allies in Congress. And we forced every single presidential candidate, including Biden, <laughs> to make climate change and jo good job creation a central core part of the Democratic agenda. And so now, even though Biden was far from our top choice in 2020, we worked and contacted millions of voters in key swing states across the country to help elect him and Kamala Harris and Democrats up and down the ticket and deliver these majorities. And we did it again in Georgia with the runoff. Sunrise Movement contacted a million voters through calls and a million texts to help flip the Senate. So Biden, Schumer, our movements, the groups you see here, we are the people that put you in office. We are the people that gave Senator Schumer his gavel. And we did it because Biden showed in good faith that he was willing to work with us and listen to our needs, our communities, our lived realities, and move in our direction. Biden should be governing and negotiating with us. But instead, what's he doing? What have we seen over the last couple of weeks? Right now, he is negotiating with a party that is actively fostering a lie that he is not even the duly elected president of the United States. He's working with the Senate GOP. Mitch McConnell has said that his number one priority is obstructing President Biden's agenda. So President Biden, we are here in front of the home that we helped you move into to deliver a clear message. To borrow some phrases from you, come on, man. Cut the malarkey. Let's deliver. That's right. Your plans as you propose them are already a compromise, already a negotiation from what you've viewed as politically possible and what is actually necessary to meet the crises that we face. So negotiating da down from that all plan, plan that was already insufficient is just not going to cut it. This is how Democrats lose. Young people should not be taken for granted in 2022. Our enthusiasm should not be taken for granted. And I've got to say, as a young person, that what I have seen over the last couple of weeks has not been particularly inspiring. So if you're going to negotiate with anyone, it should be the people who delivered for you. And that is all of us, these communities right here, these movements. And the stakes of success as Hope said, could not be higher right now. Communities like mine that I grew up in are drowning, not just from climate change, but also from joblessness, from poverty, from unemployment, from lack of housing. And we need this bold agenda to be at the full scale of what you promised. We need it to be even bigger. <laughs> and the last thing, the most important thing, this thin Democratic majority right now that we have, we, these movements, our enthusiasm is the only thing standing in a way from that majority disappearing and from a more radical, right-wing, Nazi-embracing, fascist GOP taking over the House and the Senate and eventually the White House again. And we just cannot let that happen. So Biden, Schumer, come back. Come back to us. Come back to the negotiating table with us. And you can bring your whole caucus along with you, please, okay? <laughs>
But here's the deal we propose. Go big. Go bold. Meet this moment. Deliver. Get rid of the Jim Crow filibuster, and let's get it done. And if you deliver for us, we'll deliver for you. Thank you. Sophia Portillo. I'm 17 years old from York, Pennsylvania, and I am the daughter of a Salvadorian immigrant. <laughs> Thank you. The traditional infrastructure model no longer serves our people, especially in Pennsylvania. The roads, bridges, and highways being built rip through economically disadvantaged communities, ruining not only their livelihood, but creating an unsafe environment for their children. Not only is this plan an unsustainable model of development because it exploits our protected land and resources, but it has set us back decades behind other developed nations. Our cities are built for cars and not people. We must prioritize clean and green energy to ensure the success of my generation and those to come. As everyone knows, Pennsylvania's economy is fully dependent on unsustainable industries like coal, steel, and fracking. These working class families are continuously exposed to hazardous work environments that not only compromise their health, but also the health of their families. We must make the transition to clean energy and invest in the proper workforce development needed to sustain these low income communities and people of color. I am hopeful that the framework Thrive provides will be used by Biden. Our young people's future is in your hands, President Biden. I urge you to reevaluate your decision on the infrastructure bill and to go big to meet the needs of my community. I am turning 18 in two weeks, and I will remember your decision when the time comes for me to show up at the polls. And so will many other young people. Thank you. Thank you, Sophia. Hi. Oh, thanks, Alicia. Uh, hi, my name is Kaya Chatterjee. I'm the executive director of U.S. Climate Action Network. And what brought me to the climate movement was uh, was being a mom. It's what inspires me every day. I think about my kid, and that is what makes me want to come out and do something. And when I think about where we are in this country right now and what our kids have been through, we really deserve a president who is going to make sure that our kids are thriving and not just surviving. My fifth grader has not been to school since last March. Now, when school closed, there, he, we were lucky, right? We were privileged. He was able to get online really quickly. Not everyone in his class was like that. We had kids in his class that didn't get online for two weeks, where we just had to do everything we could to get them access. So when someone says to me that broadband access is, an, is not an essential part of a package and we can cut it, that is unacceptable to me. 
And it's not just the it's it's not just the the kids. It's their parents. Those very same kids who struggled to get online, their parents were the essential workers who were still riding the bus to work, who still had to show up in person, who put their lives on the line every day to show up for their jobs. And yes, we've passed packages so that we can just survive this moment. But our communities deserve better than that. There are kids deserve better th than that, and their parents deserve better than that. So what do you guys think about Biden compromising with Republicans who prioritize militant white nationalists and prioritize anti-democratic bills over governing, over caring for the people? What do we think about that compromise? And so, so coming up this week, Biden's actually going to put out his his budget proposal, right? And what do you think he should put in there? You think he should put th this compromise he's negotiated with the with the leaders of the Republican Party? No. no. What he needs to put in there is all the stuff that was in the American Jobs Plan times three. That is the math that we need right now times three. And the reality is that yes, it's really ma been made acute over the last few weeks that few weeks, few months, year, that kids need broadband access, that parents need to have buses that are reliable. But th we need this stuff whether there's a public health emergency or not. Kids need to have internet in order to go to school. So that is part of climate justice. Broadband is part of climate justice. Predictable, reliable public transportation, it's part of climate justice. Care jobs is part of climate justice. We can we we are not here as the climate movement to leave anyone behind. And we know who gets left behind when compromise is started. We know who he is compromising. And we are not going to let it happen. Not this time and not on our watch. Thank you. You have been listening to Voices speaking in front of the White House on May 24th, 2021. Protesters called on the Biden administration to not make further cuts in his $2.2 trillion infrastructure plan, which climate, labor, and progressive activists already consider too small. They say he should not cut it in order to secure elusive support from Republicans. On Thursday, June 10th, a bipartisan group of senators said it had reached a compromise agreement that is still less than half of Biden's plan and may include a gasoline tax, which would especially hit lower income and middle income Americans rather than the wealthy and corporations Biden pledged to tax during his campaign. This is On the Ground, onthegroundshow.org, Voices of Resistance from the nation's capital.
This is On the Ground, onthegroundshow.org, Voices of Resistance from the nation's capital. I'm Esther Ivarum. And while the Biden administration has yet to secure enough votes to pass his ambitious infrastructure plan that progressives we've heard on this show advocating for, the $250 billion Innovation and Competition Act did pass both houses of Congress with bipartisan support this week. The headline for this measure is that it will counter China's technological ambitions. And there is no better person to discuss this U.S. Innovation and Competition Act than on-the-grounds geopolitical analyst, Professor Gerald Horn, professor of history and African-American studies at the University of Houston, and the author of more than three dozen books. Welcome back to the show, Gerald. Thank you. Well, I've been reading about this act uh, from our friends of the show at Code Pink, and they are warning that this act, even though it sounds somewhat uh, benign, uh, they're saying that it's disastrous, not to mention expensive, and that it will set an aggressive warlike stance against China that will escalate tensions and increase the likelihood of accidental or intentional combat by increasing troop deployments, military exercises, and weapon sales to countries around China in the Indo-Pacific. And this sounds like a lot more than just market competition. Well, I think Code Pink is on the money. We know that President Biden is in Europe as we speak, not least because he's trying to round up an anti-Beijing posse. We also know that the original name of this act was quite revealing. It was called the Endless Frontier Act. Recall that the name Frontier was the term given to Native American land as the settlers moved from the Atlantic to the Pacific. And apparently, the endless frontier would lead further west across the Pacific into China itself. We had also thought that the U.S. ruling elite was hostile to a so-called industrial policy, which this legislation portends. We had been told, at least uh, inferentially, that the military-industrial complex was the only industrial policy that was allowed. That was how the internet was developed, for example. But obviously, the fear of China is forcing Washington to change its tune. Not only that, but to change its overall policy and line. This act is going to pour more of our tax dollars into the pockets of Fortune 500 corporations, particularly those who build semiconductors these silicon chips that are so necessary for the production of everything from smartphones to these newfangled automobiles. And right now, the United States is heavily dependent upon a corporation known as the uh, Taiwan Semiconductor Corporation, which, as its name suggests, is based in Taiwan, uh, off the southern coast of China itself, a province that China claims as its own. And you would not be far wrong if you thought that sometime during this century, uh, Taiwan would be re-entering the People's Republic of China by one means or another. And so the United States is trying to hedge against that eventuality and also trying to avoid the result of the self-inflicted wound that it absorbed when in 1972, Richard M. Nixon, U.S. president, traveled to China to forge an anti-Moscow entente 
with the leaders of the People's Republic of China. This led to massive foreign direct investment from U.S. corporations into China, which has now created this juggernaut that bids fair to leave U.S. imperialism sprawling in the dust. What's interesting also about what's going on this week is that Mr. Biden plans to meet with President Putin during this European trip, uh, meet with him in Geneva, Switzerland. And yet you can read the corporate media or listen to their tones on radio or television and not be able to figure out that one of the reasons why Mr. Biden is so keen to meet with the man he has called a killer, speaking of President Putin, (laughs) is because Mr. Biden is trying to do a reverse Nixon. He wants to recruit Moscow to an anti-Beijing entente. I think that that's highly unlikely, uh, which suggests that this originally named Endless Frontiers Act will be similarly futile. You mentioned Taiwan, and we've talked about Taiwan in the past, primarily when I remember asking you about these weapon sales to Taiwan. To me, it seemed like as if another country was trying to sell arms to Florida or Alabama. And I've always been curious about, like, how could that happen? So give us a little shorthand version of history about why basically Taiwan is really a part of China or through these negotiations that happened in the 70s that Taiwan was always supposed to go back to China and be a part of China. And now it seems that because of this chip corporation that the U.S. is trying to go back on that agreement and almost like we're going to go to war over computer chips. (laughs) Well, that's possible. During the 1970s, the United States basically admitted that there was only one China, and that led to Taiwan's ouster from the United Nations. Supposedly, it was the real China, and taking its place was the Beijing-based regime. You should also know that in the 1890s, a rising Japan uh, seized Taiwan. China claims that it was seized from a weakened China, and that Japan then proceeded to colonize uh, Taiwan, uh, which it did as it colonized Korea until Japan was defeated in 1945 during World War II. And when the so-called Chinese nationalist forces under the man we called Chiang Kai-shek were defeated by the communists led by Mao Zedong, the nationalists retreated to a still heavily influenced uh, Taiwan, that is to say heavily influenced by Japan, and have been there ever since through mostly bad times, and they would call good times. But I dare say that sooner rather than later, uh, Taiwan, which only has a population of about 20 to 21 million, will have to bow to a People's Republic of China with a gargantuan population of 1.4 billion and growing. Right. Well, at this point, both the House and the Senate have passed this Innovation and Competition Act. And so we assume that it will go to Biden's desk for his signature. So, you know, from an activist point of view, I mean, what can happen at this point if the American people probably don't really know what's in this bill and what is going to happen as a result of it? What do you see activists and those advocating for like peace in the world uh, doing at this point? 
Well, certainly we have to join those who are clamoring against the possibility of a new Cold War with China, which this legislation portends. That would only mean pouring more of our tax dollars down a rat hole, just as the previous Cold War with Moscow led to a similar result. But this war, Cold War, is even more dangerous because the United States continues to borrow considerable sums from the People's Bank in China. And if that relationship were to be disrupted, it would mean that either the United States would have to cut programs, such as in education and healthcare in the first instance, or raise taxes on the wealthy. And we know from ProPublica that the wealthy, led by Jeff Bezos of Amazon, hardly pay taxes at all in the first instance. So I think Code Pink is correct to ring an alarm bell about this legislation, and it's not too late, it seems to me, to oppose it. Okay, so another thing that we've talked about on the show is Libya and the disastrous uh, U.S. and NATO-led assault on Libya that led to the assassination of Muammar Gaddafi and uh, basically the destruction of the the most prosperous and economically successful uh, country in Africa being destroyed. And we have you know open slave markets there now. We have this civil war happening, but. In any case, uh, there was a recent story in LiveScience.com about uh, an autonomous drone, a drone apparently not navigated by any human, attacking and killing uh, on its own for the first time. And this apparently happened last year, but it's just now being reported. And apparently this drone attacked and killed retreating forces of Haftar in Libya. And so this is really super concerning. I mean, the people of the Middle East have been attacked by this drone warfare for the past two decades, it seems. And this seems to kind of ratchet it up to a whole new level. Well, speaking of President Biden's trip to Europe, in Brussels during the NATO meeting, he has scheduled a get-together with President Erdogan of Turkey and his Turkish forces who are accused of using what are referred to colloquially as robot soldiers. And I trust that Mr. Biden will raise this issue with President Erdogan because in some ways it opens the doors of hell. What I mean is that the Turks have been quite eager and energetic lately in developing drone warfare. They supply drones to their Azerbaijani comrades when they defeated Armenia a few months ago. We know that previously, as you suggested, a person could sit in Utah and like a video game, operate drones and missiles that could kill on the battlefield of Afghanistan. That is to say there was human intervention. But now we've entered this brave new world where these drones or robot soldiers uh, with artificial intelligence, that is to say a kind of brain, operate on their own in a sort of dystopian hellscape. And it raises the specter, quite frankly, of the Will Smith movie, iRobot, which suggested a similar trajectory uh, for this small planet. And we also have to be concerned because Turkey is quite busy in Africa right now, not only in Libya, but also in Somalia, where it's basically the power behind the throne. And also throughout a good deal of Africa, 
where Islam is ascendant. So I think it's fair to say that as France begins to withdraw from the Sahel, which is in the process of doing, according to an announcement on June 10th, uh, you can see more activism on the African continent by Turkey. And this use of robot soldiers is not a good sign at all. Well, we have a little bit more to cover on these drones and also the win of Mr. Pedro Castillo in Peru. But we'll have to finish this off the air and uh, we'll post it on our website. I've been speaking to our geopolitical analyst, Professor Gerald Horn. Thank you for joining me today, Gerald. Thank you. And Professor Gerald Horn will have the last word on today's episode of On the Ground, onthegroundshow.org, Voices of Resistance from the Nation's Capital. Special thanks to Gerald Horn and Chantel James for their contributions to today's show. You can check out all of our current and past shows on the website we maintain, onthegroundshow.org. And you can reach out to us and support us there as well. You can also like the show at On The Ground Show on Facebook and Twitter. And thank you to all of our supporters on Patreon.com at On The Ground Show. Our new podcast, On The Ground with Esther Averam, is on all your podcast platforms. Our new podcasts, our social media pages, and website all have a protest sign with green lettering that says On The Ground. The music we played this hour included Damar by The Third Generation, New York, New York by Jay-Z and Alicia Keys, are You Going With Me by Pat Metheny, Street Fighter Boss by Kamasi Washington, Palestine by Carlos Vivanco, and our theme music is Voodoo Child by Jimi Hendrix. I'm Esther Averam. Until next time, take good care and keep raising your voice. Peace. Esther Ivarum, producer and host of On the Ground, thanking you for listening and for being a part of our audience. And I'm asking you to please partner with us in keeping alive this independent grassroots news program from Washington, D.C. Your fully tax-deductible donation of as little as $3 a month will help us keep lifting up voices of activism and resistance to corporate power and corporate media. So please go to our page at patreon.com forward slash on the ground show that's patreon p-a-t-r-e-o-n dot com forward slash on the ground show where we post the shows and bonus material or you can see all the ways to support including end of the year giving and paypal on our website 
which you know is onthegroundshow.org. Thank you.